0: To turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Mark, chapter 11. Jesus demonstrated his authority in the cleansing of the temple. The next day, as we're going to read this morning, he returns to Jerusalem, goes right back to the temple, no fear of retribution, no shame for what he has done. The cleansing of the temple. The lesson of the barren fig tree revealed that Israel had not produced the fruit that was pleasing to God as evidence of His grace on them. They had instead relied on their own works, their own goodness to secure God's blessing rather than seeing their sinfulness, realizing their inability to perfectly keep God's law created the need for faith in God to save them because they could not do it themselves. And so as Jesus alludes to near the middle of chapter 11. The Mount of Olives itself is about to be thrown into the sea. Israel is about to be turned into a level plain as Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 prophesied. It is the time for Israel's judgment to arrive and the final nail of the coffin of her rejection of her covenant Lord will be the murder of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is challenged in this text again that we'll read this morning. By what authority had He Cleanse the temple. Where did he get the nerve? By what authority had he been doing any of the things he'd been doing or saying any of the things he'd been saying? This is the first of six controversy stories where Jesus will demonstrate in the last part of Mark his superior wisdom. He'll expose the religious leadership as self-centered, deceitful, hypocritical, and completely unworthy to lead or to tend God's people. And beloved, the questions this text raises... They confront us this morning as well. Will we, each one of us, submit to the authority of Jesus as the cornerstone of the new temple God has built? Will we enter by the way He has provided? Or will we reject His authority and seek to gain the kingdom, gain salvation another way? We must submit the desire we have to rule ourselves to Jesus who alone has authority, but not just to rule us, to save us. Let me pray, and we'll begin. Father, we thank you so much for your perfect word. We trust the Bible because it was inspired by your Holy Spirit, and it is what you wanted to say to us through the hands of those who wrote it. So, Father, open every eye, open every ear and every heart and mind to your word this morning, the word of Christ. Please be with me, Father. Please come and help me. Please fill me with Your Spirit. May I speak only what You have breathed into this text. May I not speak my own words or preach myself, but preach Christ crucified for sinners, which we all are. And we look to You in the name of Jesus Christ. Help me, Father. Amen. Let me read verses 27-33 through of Mark chapter 11. And they came again to Jerusalem... And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? From man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So it's pretty clear, isn't it, what's what's at issue here? Who has authority to lead Israel, to tend God's people? Mark reminds us right at the opening of this section that Jesus is in Jerusalem. This is the climax of of his ministry that's very near and they try again the religious leaders in Israel to trap Jesus in his words they're seeking evidence for his messianic claims to have this authority mainly here and now because he's just done something so crazy to them and irreverent to them he cleansed the temple what gave him the right to do this these are the accusations that will be brought against Jesus at his trial the Romans did not like insurrectionists They would put down insurrections as quickly as they could. Anything that went against established authority of any kind. And so they're adamant here to paint Jesus as an insurrectionist who pays no attention to authority. False prophets also could be executed under Jewish law. So they want to out him. They want to charge him. Jesus asks a counter question here that creates a conundrum and challenges the very sincerity of these men. Period. Look again at verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. The baptism of John, that phrase is shorthand for John's ministry period. His whole ministry of baptism, of repentance, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And it was a given in Israel that John the Baptist had been a prophet sent from God. Remember, he had been beheaded by Herod at this point, so he's no longer alive, but he was held to be God's prophet. His martyr only strengthened that opinion about him. Now these religious leaders who had rejected John entirely, they either have to admit that they should have listened to John and they didn't, or they have to face the wrath of the people for not doing so because they didn't believe he was sent from God. But beyond that, the ministry of John the Baptist was the preparation for the ministry of Jesus himself. Jesus was not only baptized by John the Baptist, but John in his ministry pointed clearly to Jesus as his successor. So if they will admit that they accept John's divine authority, they're going to have to accept Jesus's as well. Notice in verses 29 and 30 that twice he said, "Answer me. Answer me." He's making a demand. This is showing his authority. He's tired of messing with them. They are false They are hypocritical. They are evil. And now Jesus himself, one against many, is pressing the question. He's pushing them. So they're thinking the audacity of this young prophet, rabbi from Nazareth, to demand an answer from us, from Israel's religious leaders. What happens here is the picture, the perfect picture of the duplicity of these religious leaders and their hypocrisy look again at 31 and 32 and they discussed it with one another this is a straightforward question from god or from man they discussed it with one another saying if we say from heaven he will from god is what that means he he will say why then did you not believe him but shall we say from man they were afraid of the people for they all held that john was really a prophet in um, Matthew and Luke's account of this story, they add to the sentence here at the end of verse 32. They actually reveal that they said, if we say from man, all the people will stone us, right? In Mark, Mark leaves that out and makes it an open-ended question as, as them considering the consequences of saying, if we say from man, are too horrible to even consider. If we say from man, we know what's going to happen to us. These religious leaders, then, we see here, are not motivated by the truth. That is not why they reject Jesus. It is not why they are so dedicated to the law and Judaism because they care about truth. They are motivated, we find here, by the way they look to others. This is the main reason they try so hard to be righteous. This is the main reason therefore they reject Jesus because Jesus says, I don't care how good you are. That is not what saves I save, and only me. Well, that's the end of their ministry as they know it. If God will accept people based on the righteousness of Jesus for them, if God will wash away our sins because we believe in Jesus, then I can't bring anything to the table. I have no nothing to brag about, nothing to feel self-confident about. So he's destroying their whole system. They're motivated by appearances. That tells us two things at least. It tells us why they're so committed to appearing appearing outwardly righteous. And we know now they feared people in their opinions more than they feared God. They were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. What Jesus exposes here is their hypocrisy. And beloved, when we read this text, we all need to understand nobody but Jesus Christ is completely honest with us all the time. Only Jesus doesn't have an agenda in his back pocket that steers the way he talks to us. Jesus never backs away to consort with a committee about how he should answer a question we have. Because if he says this, then they'll feel like that. If 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 I say that, they'll feel like this. Jesus doesn't do this. We are always maneuvering. Beloved, even even to the people we love in our lives, our friends, our family, our, our loved ones in our relationships, we maneuver to control, to control the situation, to make sure they don't think less of us, that everybody else thinks highly of us, even people we don't know. Right, We spend money we don't have to impress people we don't know. It doesn't make any sense, but this is who we are. And the fact that this human trait resides in the religious leaders of Israel who were passionate to know the Scriptures and passionate to obey the law, they're like that too. They're the epitome of this. What does this say about our desire, about how much it drives us and shapes us that we look righteous? Not necessarily that we are righteous. Only Jesus is completely honest with us all the time. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Look at verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus wins. Here's the point of his response. If they are not able to discern whether or not a prophet is from God and speaks his authoritative word, then they are completely unable to lead Israel. That's exactly what Jesus is indicting them with in verse 33. Their pride and self-interest outweighed their submission to the will of God. If they won't answer his question, he won't answer theirs. Why should he? There's no reason to. He's not going back and forth with them. Jesus refuses to give them an answer to their question because their answer to his question shows that if they have no discernment in the ways of God as it pertains to John... Then they have no authority or ability to judge the source of Jesus' authority. Jesus could have spared himself some hatred and suffering here by not confronting the Pharisees, right? Jesus, why are you doing this? Why are you poking the bear, as it were? Especially so close to cleansing the temple and, 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 but doing all these things in Jerusalem itself, that's, that's their base. That's their home territory. But remember, this is the Son of Man. This is the one that has all true authority, remember? And it is as the authoritative Son of Man that He will willingly give His life as a ransom for many. Beloved, He is the one to trust. Just Jesus. He is the one capable of leading His people. He is the one who truly loves us. Do we understand this? Jesus is the only one that truly loves us and won't ever use us because he lacks nothing that we could give him. He needs nothing from us. He did not come to be served, but to serve as the son of man, as the one with all the authority, giving up his life for us. We don't need to give him anything, but only receive from him. This is the gospel. If there's something we can give Him, these religious leaders are the best people that have ever existed. And instead, Jesus talks to them like they're the worst. They're the sons of their father, the devil. That's what devil worship looks like more than anything else. We think, again, it's fangs and you know, black clothes and all these things. Yes, that's demonic and satanic worship of some kind, but there's nothing more satanic than telling God, I don't need the righteousness of your Son. I don't need the forgiveness of your Son. I can earn my own salvation by being good. I can atone for my own sins and faults by being a good person. Beloved, that is of the devil. That is Antichrist. Jesus doesn't need to spare himself suffering. And he's not trying to. He's on mission to save people. He won't let the people down and fail them or fail us as the religious leaders of Israel had done. He is able, he is willing, he is truth, and therefore doesn't need the approval of people and he isn't concerned with appearances. He can be honest with us. So the parable he's about to tell is a blatant attack on this religious leadership in Israel who has not only proven incapable of leading God's people, Jesus is about to reveal that all along they have been evil to the core. Judgment against Israel's leaders symbolized by the cleansing of the temple and the withered fig tree, those things play out in this parable in which you have these tenant farmers who reject the owner of a vineyard and even kill his representatives, even going so far as to kill his son, Jesus knows what they intend to do. Look back at 11, verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus knows what they want to do to him. He knows. Look in chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. And give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Earlier in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Jesus revealed that He spoke in parables to deliberately conceal the truth about Him because the people, the religious leaders mainly, rejected Him. But now, at the climax of Jesus' ministry, He tells them a parable so that they can understand precisely what He is saying. He is unafraid. Jesus is resolute to purchase our salvation. He will make sure they want to kill Him. To portray Israel's leaders as wicked tenant farmers over God's vineyard who refused to give the owner his due and eventually kill his son. Jesus is drawing from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah here and the song of the vineyard. Let me read it to you from Isaiah chapter five verses one through seven. The Lord says, "Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, he built a watchtower in the midst of it. Does that sound familiar? right? And hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Isaiah 5, 1-7. So Jesus' point we come to understand is crystal clear. Like God's beloved in Isaiah 5, the man in his parable here puts in work to plant this vineyard. That's Jesus is deliberately using the language of Isaiah 5 here in Mark 12 so that those listening will make the connection. Oh, you're talking about that passage. He put a fence around it. He dug for the wine press. He built a watchtower to keep its grapes protected. Jesus shows the fulfillment of this when he says the man who planted the vineyard leased it to tenants... And went into another country. We see the connection. These religious leaders have been overseeing God's people like tenant farmers in God's vineyard called Israel until the Messiah, the Son of Man, God's beloved, would come. The man who planted the vineyard eventually wants to see the fruit of what he planted in Jesus' parable. So he sent a servant to get some of it. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. This is crazy behavior. Right? They, they not only said, no, we're not going to give you any, they beat him up. Not only giving him nothing like the owner requested, they assaulted him. And the same thing happens many more times in verses 4 and 5. It was Jesus who said of these religious leaders in Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, that's who they are. These tenants, the religious leadership in Israel, not only rejected God's prophets, they had killed them. They had beaten them. They had yielded wild grapes, completely unlike what God had planted, according to Isaiah. They would not listen to his word. They would not repent of their sins. They would not plead for mercy, just as the barren fig tree that withered showed. That, again, is why Jesus cleansed the temple. That is why Jesus refused to give these men answers. They were barren, Unfruitful, hypocritical, and evil. They will kill. The harshest words Jesus ever had were for people who thought they were better than other people. People who thought that by their own works they were good enough to merit God's approval and merit God's salvation. Jesus never talked to a prostitute like this. Ever. He never talked to an adulterous person like this. Ever. He didn't talk to a tax collector like this. He ate and drank with them. Remember, this is how He talks to people that think in their own works and in their own righteousness they can get God's approval. God will accept them. God likes them, not you. Is that how we come off to the world? Beloved, I pray it isn't. Because if that's what they're rejecting, they're not rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting us. And we don't want this. But inexplicably, somehow... And again, the point is the insanity of the tenants. That's why the story sounds, rather than destroy them all, for what they've done in verse 6, the owner decides, I'll send my beloved son. They'll respect him. So the owner of the vineyard in the story is thinking, now they'll know how serious I am, that I want some of the fruit from my vineyard. I want to see how it's going. Maybe I just haven't made myself clear. So he sends his son. They will respect my son, a beloved son. Jesus is very careful to call him. We've heard that before. God said that about Jesus at his baptism in Matthew three seventeen. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So look at 7 and 8. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Ah, now we know what's going on. They wanted the fruit of the vineyard for themselves. Right? They wanted to own it. They wanted to look like they had produced it. Right? But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Again, now we know what the religious leadership in Israel wanted all along and why they were the way they were. They wanted what only Jesus had the authority to take. They wanted what only Jesus was righteous enough to be given. But they weren't up to the task. They've only produced wild grapes. They're barren. Beloved, neither are we up to the task of producing the fruit that God requires. We don't have the ability or the authority to please God, to bear fruit that is pleasing to Him and to rule and to reign in justice and love and mercy and with integrity and in grace. We are horrible tenants of the truth, of the things of God. We'll twist it. We want it to look like we did it. That's why our testimonies often sound the way they do. I've done this. I've done that. I did this. I did that. I used to do this. Now I do this. Right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not what I should be, but I'm not what I used to be. Right? It's me, 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 me. I'm the reason you should believe in Jesus. We become so enamored of our own work in the vineyard and our appearance to others that we not only reject God's continued attempts to speak to us through His Word, but we kill His Son and try to steal what's rightfully His if we can. We can't earn it, but we want it. So we'll try to steal it through our own efforts to gain our salvation. And listen, God has had enough. The point here again is the audacity of these tenants. Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. In Isaiah 5-7, the vineyard represents Israel and Judah, which... God will judge for their failure to produce good spiritual fruit, right? They've yielded wild grapes instead. Because of their injustice and idolatry, God was going to take away their heads of protection and allow the Assyrians to overrun. Jesus takes this imagery and applies it to Israel's leadership specifically as wicked tenant farmers over God's vineyard who not only refused to give God his share of the produce, but rejected and abused his servants, the prophets, and then finally, they will literally murder his own son, which is precisely what these men are about to do. These men. So they'll be judged. And the authority over the vineyard, over God's people, will be given to others. Notice that Jesus interprets Isaiah to be saying that the vineyard itself will actually not be destroyed. The tenants will, and the vineyard itself will be given to others to tend and to steward. Isaiah prophesied in 5-6 that God will make the vineyard a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Jesus related this to the religious leadership back in Israel, back in uh, Mark 11 verse 14 when he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Israel's religious system will not produce the fruit that declares God's light to the nations. That task, tending the people of God so that they can be faithful to it, is going to be given to others in verse 9. Israel has had it taken away from them. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Ever. In fact, Jesus' words here point to something even more devastating and comprehensive than what the tenants had done to the owner's son, when the owner uses the word destroy in verse 9. This is precisely what God did in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem entirely. No stone was left upon another in the temple. They destroyed it. They destroyed the Jewish sacrificial system. They destroyed the priesthood. They destroyed the Sanhedrin and everything else. The very heart of Judaism itself And gave the vineyard finally to the word of Jesus and his apostles to be the leadership of his people, the church. God's posture towards us depends 100% on our posture towards his son. God will treat us as we have treated Jesus. In these last few verses, Jesus reveals they, they've never actually understood or accepted God's Word. They, they didn't understand it when they read it. Look at 10 and 11. Have you not read this Scripture? Like, how did you guys miss this, that it was talking about you? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Back in Mark eleven nine, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the people were shouting... Verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. Hosanna, bless this, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Here, Jesus, while that's still in their minds, recites other verses from that same psalm that actually refer to the rejection and vindication of this one who comes in the name of the Lord, the Messiah. Jesus brings in Psalm 118 here to shift the emphasis of his parable from agriculture, vineyards, to architecture, building something, And to shift its theme from the judgment against the tenants to the vindication of this son that the leaders, the tenants, killed. A stone considered to be inadequate, unworthy by the builders, the tenants, eventually is going to become the most important stone in the building that God is building in 1 Corinthians 3:11, Ephesians 2:20-22, this cornerstone is spoken of as foundational. In 1 Peter 2:6-8, that same stone can be stumbled over when people don't believe in him or they reject him. The point is that the cornerstone makes the building. It's the most important stone in the building. So Mark understands Jesus and his messianic community. To be the fulfillment for the temple in Jerusalem as God's house. As the apostles will blatantly teach in places like 1 Corinthians three nine, Ephesians 2.19, 1 Peter 2.5. By the faithful tenancy of Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son, over God's house, the Spirit will produce in us, the church from every nation, Abraham's children, the fruit that is finally pleasing to God. Now imagine... How this encouraged Mark's audience who were suffering in Rome for their faith. Remember, they may have been hidden in the catacombs reading this when they got it, fearing for their lives. The vindication of a rejected stone that was killed and the subsequent building of the new temple of God means they too will be vindicated after they suffer. For Christ has risen from the dead, vindicated by God Himself. Who cares what the leaders thought of him? God vindicated him. It's the only opinion that matters. In verse 11, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That is demonstrated, our recognition of this through our worship. Meaning all of this is the prerogative and purpose of the sovereign Lord who is ordaining all of these events to accomplish his divine will. Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And just a few days later, these tenants seized the son, abused him, and killed him outside the city, outside the vineyard, just as verse 8 had prophesied. Now, notice that at least three times We'd say four if we, well, at least three times from 1115 to 1212, we read that the religious leadership in Jerusalem acted the way they did out of fear. They feared Jesus. They feared the people. They were afraid of them, right? Ed Welch wrote a book several years ago. It's a phenomenal book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. If we live and die, For the approval of other people. We will never please God. It's impossible. We aren't seeing reality clearly. If what's big in our eyes is other people and not God. It will lead to all kinds of insanity. All kinds. We'll become murderers. I'd never kill anybody. What did Jesus say? Do you hate then you've already committed murder. That's what it is to hate. Words have meaning. Words have meaning. If we could get away with it, do you know how many people we would kill? Other people are the wrong ones to fear. Fear, in this is not just a sense of dread. It's mainly a sense of reverence, of respect, of awe. We have that for people more than we have it For the God who made us and sustains the earth. Other people are the wrong things to fear. What will happen to me in the future is the wrong thing to fear. What can be done to us? What can be taken away from us? What others think of us? These are the wrong things to fear. It is possibly the primary reason people will lose their own souls. It's so sinister and it feels so right and so natural to worry about number one, which makes everybody else really big and God really small because we can't see him. It's this fear, the fear of mere people in whose nostrils is breath, scripture says. We have to breathe to survive. You take away oxygen, we die. God doesn't breathe. We understand this. Jesus, God in the flesh, did while he lived and walked among us, but God is not a human being like us. He he doesn't breathe. Why would we fear, reverence, respect, awe, people that are just like us, as dependable on invisible air as we are to survive? That makes us hypocrites. That fear makes us hypocrites, just like the religious leadership in Israel. But we were meant by God's grace to produce actual fruit, right? Not wild grapes, not fruit on the outside that has no root. From the Christian point of view, it's fear of people that causes us to fake our own righteousness, to fake our own goodness, to lie, to pretend, to do what the Pharisees and the religious leaders did in verse 31. To, to angle so that we look the way we want to look. Believing and trusting in Jesus is the only way a human being can ever live honestly and consistently. Trusting in Jesus is the only means by which we will ever glorify God. And the one who made us has commanded it. We were made for His glory, not our own. It is only if we walk by the Spirit that we will not give in to the lustful desires of our flesh. Galatians 5.16 Desires that make us want to look righteous much more than to actually be righteous. And here's the thing. Again, I want to press this. The righteousness Jesus requires is way more than any person can work up on their own. Right? Anybody can feel badly enough or be motivated enough to help feed the poor, donate to things which are all very good things, to be kind to people, very good, very Christian, right? But anybody can do that. Jesus commands what we cannot do. We can pull off, again, not murdering, literally. We can't pull off not hating. I watched a football game last night. I hated 11, 19-year-olds dressed in white that I've never met. Right? Right? We're, we're beloved. We're crazy. It's not just me. Don't act like. Don't laugh like that. <laughs> right? I know what you say about Pitt. Ah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know what we, beloved. We look. We hate. We hate. We we, we can't change our own hearts. Anybody with enough will can change their behavior. We can't change our hearts. If changing our actions were all God cared about, Jesus died for nothing. He died because not only can we not outwardly do what He commands us to do, but we inwardly cannot change or cleanse our own hearts. If He doesn't die for us, we will die forever. The worst thing we, we, we feel like it, it's, this, if, if I could venture a theory, this is what is killing society right now more than anything else. The desire through our own works and our own goodness to look like a good person, right? The reason people are so adamant about these things and these causes is because they're finding their own salvation in them. That's their gospel. Right. That's that's their gospel. That's their means to salvation. So I'm a good person because I'm tolerant. I'm a good person because I'm patriotic. I'm a good person because I'm accepting. I'm a good person because I'm old fashioned. I'm a good person because I'm not a racist. Well, I'm a good person because I'm, you know, a blue blood. I'm a conservative, whatever it is. We have social media now to display our righteousness, not just to our friends and family. We crave the likes of people we have never seen, won't ever know, have nothing on us. We don't even know their names. Right? You ever notice how much care we take into getting presentable to go out? Now, if you're going out with your spouse, take a bath, right? (laughs) But if, but if if you, most people, I mean, uh, with the exception of maybe going to Walmart in your pajamas, we talked about that before, but what are, what are we doing? We care so much about other people. And God would say, look, it's not that they don't matter to me. It's that they have to breathe to survive. Why do you need them so badly to approve of you? Why? What is it in us that would kill somebody's son so that we could take credit for something we didn't produce? The worst thing that could happen to us then in this equation is that somebody knew who we really were. Be nothing more nightmarish than that. What if you knew all that I am when I'm not up here? You know, if you saw me not when I'm not in the office, if I didn't know you were there, right? Would would you think the same of me? Again, the, the worst thing that could happen. In this society as we've created, you realize how unforgiving current society is? It's, it's the law on cocaine. You couldn't have even slipped up 15 years ago when you were a child anymore. Right? There's no mercy in our culture. None. And, and the fallout of this is all around us. More people are taking their lives. More, more young people are anorexic and suffer from eating disorders. More and more people are struggling with their, struggling with their sexuality. Right? Because the need to be loved and liked and approved is so high, we would give our own lives to get it. Anything is better than people knowing the real me. What, what if people just knew how broken we really were? what if that was part of the church's witness? Right? We're, we're, we're not the great ones. We're the ones so... We're, we're, right? We're not the little engine that could. We're the train wreck that can't. Right? Because we can't lie to Jesus. You can't lie to Jesus. None of us can. And not all those things I talked about. Like... Being kind and none of that is bad, and we absolutely should be the kindest people on the earth. I'm simply saying none of those things will save us. There's, we're not getting around Jesus. He has all the authority. He calls all the shots. We're not getting around him. We've given authority in our lives to shape who we are and to give us our identity, to those whose approval we believe we need the most, whether that's our spouses, our kids, our in-laws, our classmates at school, our coworkers, right? Culture at large, again, nameless faces on social media. We give them, we, we give all the authority to shape who we are and make us who we are to other people. This is the root of the problem in Israel. And Jesus says that drives us to be murderous. Nothing is more contentious in society than the fact that we're all trying to save ourselves. That's why we're all so mean. I doubt the religious leadership in Israel thought of it in those terms. But Jesus identified the leaven of the Pharisees as one thing, hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is completely unnecessary if we have Jesus. It's completely unnecessary to put up a front when the message we bear is we are sinners saved by grace. Why is everybody trying to look good? Look like you needed grace. That's what speaks. And again, well, am I supposed to go try to sin? No, you only ask that if you aren't aware of how sinful you already are. Like you wouldn't sin if if, 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 if the pastor didn't say, you know, which I've never said, you should go sin. I wouldn't be sinful if Beloved, we don't need any help. We don't need any help. This struggle is ultimately a problem with authority. Who we give it to, where we think it resides. It's a denial of the demand and lordship of the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ himself. But it's also a denial of his grace. And the salvation from him that cleanses us of sin. Fills us with his spirit for good works and makes us whole. No, we can't lie to Jesus. That's the bad news. He's the son of God. Here's the good news. There is absolutely no need to. Other people are other people. They know the real us. They probably won't like us, won't want to be our friend, won't want to be our spouse, won't want to be our kids, won't want to be friends with us at school, on and on and on it goes. Not Jesus. Jesus won't turn away anyone who comes to him. Did you know that? He won't turn away anybody who comes to him. He knows who you are. He knows everything you've done, everything you're doing. He knew it this day. That's precisely what he went to die for. It's not that if Jesus didn't know who you really were, he would have changed his mind. It's that he knew who you were and therefore would not change his mind. If that's not salvation, the preacher's not getting into heaven. Period. He is at the same time the only one it makes sense to fear with so much reverence that we would get our identity from him. But of whom there is also no need to fear because Jesus wouldn't break a bruised reed. Who is Jesus to tell me what to do? He's the eternal Son of God who speaks and acts by the authority given to Him by God the Father. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Jesus already has. But one of the things He's telling us to do is repent. And in this is our salvation. Go to Him and admit that you know what He knows. He's not going to crush you for it. He crushed his son because that's who you are, for you and for me. Believe in that, trust in that, and you are saved. It doesn't matter what you're carrying with you when you come. Just don't try to give it to him as the means of approval. He won't take it. Whether or not God will approve you, the question has been answered when he looks at his son. So we get saved by believing in him. That's our story. That's salvation. We're so self-absorbed and convinced of our own sovereignty that fallen human beings will stop at nothing in our attempts to overthrow the sovereignty of their creator. Jesus took our best shot. We murdered him. Guess what? Three days later, he said, yeah, I'm not staying in this thing. I have authority. Not death. Not the grave. Not the devil. Not you. Not me. Him. Him. We killed his son. We aren't actually in charge of anything. God raised Jesus from the dead. Our opinion of Jesus versus God's opinion of Jesus, and God's opinion wins. He's seated right now at the ultimate place of authority, the right hand of God the Father. Listen, every person in this room must bow their knees to Christ. No exceptions. None. But it's only at these feet that there is true forgiveness, true restoration, true cleansing. God makes me clean, and I'm not clean. This is the quality of Jesus for me. We must be born again, and he is the author of life healing for all that we are and all that we've done is only in His hands. His authority not only governs the cosmos and will bring everything in subjection under His feet, but also grants the right to sinners like me to become bona fide children of God by grace through faith. Not only is Lordship His prerogative, so are love and mercy and forgiveness and identity, so is our salvation. So come to Jesus. Unbeliever, please Come to Jesus. He will take you and He will never let you go. Believers still struggling under the weight of trying to earn God's approval. Come to Jesus. We do not have the authority to save. We don't have the authority to work up the works and the fruit that is acceptable to God. Stop trying. Stop dying and live. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Don't be burdened again by a yoke of bondage. Come to Jesus.